I want to ask you about the, the, the very title of your book and the, the idea of something from nothing. Uh, um, you are telling us that matter arose spontaneously out of nothing, yeah. which I find an, an immensely exciting idea, um, but many people will find it mind-boggling. Mind-boggling and offensive. I think maybe not as I offensive. Hell with as offensive, but no, mind-boggling. I found. It, I found <laughs> no, no. Well, you're not offended, but I've, I check my email. Um, uh, it amazes me because the, the purpose of the book, to some extent, is to say something remarkable. And it, and and you were kind enough in the afterward to point out the analogy to Darwin, and I was pretentious to make it perhaps, but but. The, the physicist Steven Weinberg said, science doesn't make it impossible to believe in God, it just makes it possible to not believe in God. Because until you have science, everything's a miracle. And what Darwin showed, as you said at the beginning of our discussion, is this miracle is actually plausible from basic principles of physics, chemistry, and biology. That you can, you can produce us without a creator. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. of today's guest, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, author of so many books. Uh, to read their titles would take us to the end of the podcast. Uh, of course, this is the number one uh, New York Times bestselling, A Universe from Nothing. Uh, he's written The Physics of Star Trek, <clears throat> and he's also written The Physics of Climate Change. So this episode is just called The Physics of Lawrence. And uh, <laughs> I want to welcome you to, uh, to my podcast. It's been three presidential administrations since we were together, but it's good to see you. It's really good to see you. I'm sorry in a way that it's not uh, that we're not together in real life and just virtually, but hopefully that'll change one day too. Yeah, you were so kind to speak at the Math for America uh, Simon's Foundation supported project uh, in 2012, and that's when we were last together here in uh, UC San Diego. And uh, in that time, a lot has happened, as I said, including you know multiple presidential administrations. So actually, the first question I want to ask you today. Lawrence, is that I thought that you said you would move to Canada if Donald Trump got reelected, but you're there now and the president is Joe Biden. What gives? It's, it's just, you know, time lag. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the world, it's the country he, he helped um, create. But I also said, just, just to make it quite clear that I'm obviously not a man of my word. I also said I'd move to Canada if George W. Bush was elected. That's and right. I did fly. I did fly to Canada right the day after that election, but but I didn't stay. Um, but it takes <laughs> some time to to uh, to to um, become an expatriate. And um, um, any in any case, uh, I, I'd like to think that, that you know better late than never. Right, right. So uh, the uh, the books that we're going to talk about today, of course, we are going to talk about a universe from nothing, multiverse, string theory. Uh, your vocal, uh, you know, exponent, proponent of scientific reasoning, uh, scientific thinking. You are the proprietor of the Origins uh, podcast and the Origins uh, Project Foundation, which has had many, many speakers, some of whom I poached. So thank you, uh, <laughs> Lawrence, for giving me the idea to get Shelley Glashow on and get Noam Chomsky on my podcast. And um, they're very delightful, and we get to cover different aspects of their personalities. But I do want to start with A Universe from Nothing, uh, which is uh, subtitled, Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing? And I'm also going to talk about your um, pen previous book. I was about to say penultimate book, but I think you're so productive, you're probably writing with your hands right now, <laughs> another book. Uh, but this book was sort of uh, with a forward by, uh, or an afterward by Richard Dawkins. 
it's very surprising to me, Lawrence, again, that someone who is so well known in the humanist or atheist uh, sort of community, that you have a dog named after the prince of the tribe of priests of of the Israelite uh, tribes. You have a dog named Levi. Is that correct? I, I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to try. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're seeing a Levite. Yeah, there, wow. you're seeing a Levite right there, out of out of Blinked. focus. But there, there he is. There, there he is. Wow. There he is. And and um and he appreciates the the, the shout out that you just gave him. And, <laughs> so, what and, is the world's you know foremost or second foremost after Richard Dawkins, your friend? Why does the you know most pr- prominent uh, one of the most prominent atheists have a dog named after the tribes of is of Israel? Well, I can give you three two answers. Um, I don't know if any of them are true, but uh, the first answer is that I didn't choose the name. Okay. Um, but the the second answer is his name is is Levi Krauss, right? So now now you get it. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Well, he is uh, he's got good genes. Let me yeah. just say. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of my uh, one of my dogs uh, doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't behave properly, and and we always say you know it's bad genes, but then uh, the, we have to put him. I have a third answer too. I just occurred to me. His mother have- was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right. Well, you know these the Levites in the temple service would where they were you know of course very powerful, but they were subservient to the Kohanim, the Kohanes, the, mm-hmm. the people that you meet, Cohen or Kagan, and people like that. And uh, they would have to wash their uh, their overlord's feet. That was part of their service. So I hope Levi, your dog, will do the same to his he, he owner. He would be very happy to wash my feet. He's he he would be happy. He licks them. Actually, there you go. <laughs> So I want to turn now to uh, to books because okay. uh, you are a prolific author, and actually the first time we almost met, we had a co- we had a close encounter of the Cleveland kind in 1993. I graduated from Case Western Reserve University, and that was the year you became chairman of the physics department. And yeah. so I think we just missed by a couple of weeks. But at the graduation, the previous chair, uh, who I can't remember who it was, uh, he uh, gave all the graduates. There were only thirteen of us. It was a, it's a great school. It remains mm. a great school. Sure. Uh, but he gave all 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 of us uh, physics majors a copy of Steven Weinberg's uh, "Dreams of a Final Theory," mm-hmm. which could not have come at worse timing because, of course, later that year, the superconducting supercollider, which Steven was advocating mm-hmm. for and advocating yeah. for, was canceled. Um, I want to ask you about books. I heard you say once that you were turned on to what we call popular science uh, by a man that I'm very fond of, and I actually have him incarnate or perhaps in miniature form. I have a lot of puppets, Lawrence. Maybe someday you'll have a puppet. By this man here. See this guy? Do you recognize Gal- this guy? It was, that could be Galileo. I'm not sure. It is Galileo. <laughs> yeah. It's the telescope. You see that? Yeah, gave it yeah, away. yeah. Well, um, I didn't know if it was a snake he was holding, but I assumed it was the telescope. I actually have a lot of- I'm a big fan him. of Galileo's, by the way. He had a great yeah. sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. tell me about that. I want to talk- I'm actually recording- I've taken upon myself with the help of Carlo Rovelli mm-hmm. to uh, to make the first ever audiobook version of the dialogues. It's never oh. been done before in human history. So uh, Carlo, myself, and a good friend of mine, Lucio Picciarillo- are recording the first ever audiobook of any of Galileo's books in it's, Italian. Uh, uh, what's that in Italian? Uh, yeah, see, si, see, si, you know. <laughs> no, no, I'm not doing it in Italian. Oh, well, okay. their English the other two is, sounded like they're Italian, so I figured maybe you could, you could do, yeah. That. Carlo okay. Ravelli, of course, is a, is a renowned uh, author and yeah. thinker, uh, advocate of loop quantum gravity. We're gonna get into mm-hmm. all that, but let's get but back to Galileo. It, Galileo yeah. means so much to me because he really was the first scientist, he was a popular yeah. author, and Stephen Jay Gould 
in the book that I tried to get an audio version of and found to my chagrin it didn't exist and ha- then had to make it myself, Stephen Jay Gould called him one of the greatest writers of nonfiction in human history. Yeah, I mean, superior to I, I'm, I've said, and you may have, if you've read things I've said, I've said many times that it upsets me that we, we have these great books programs at universities and you have to read Ulysses, but you don't have to read the dialogues. The dialogues are easier to read and funnier. Certainly I would think. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. um, uh, and yeah, so Galilee was, was a role model in many ways, but, 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 um, what, what, uh, probably, well, the reason uh, I read a, about him, a book, uh, not by him, but I read a book about him and I was 11 or 12 for, uh, in grade, in grade six, I think. And, uh, it was probably recommended in school. I was in some enrichment program and, um, and, uh, it really had a huge impact on me because it made me think, and I've since discovered this isn't true, but it made me think of scientists as brave individuals fighting for truth and, 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 and willing to, you know, confront, uh, obviously, uh, pseudoscience, superstition, whatever. And, and so that brave, uh, effort of his really, really resonated with me. I remember at the time thinking that, but also the, the notion of, of being the first one, you know, to see the moons of Jupiter and, and, uh, and changing obviously the way we think, we think about the world. And, uh, in fact, I, one of my books, uh, fear of physics, um, really begins with Galileo in a, in a for important way, because really, I mean, he changed everything in such an important way. We don't, we don't really give him credit. And I, uh, one of the things that when I've taught, uh, as I, I have over the years, I've taught many courses standardly called physics for poets courses in universities. When I taught at Yale, um, which is where I taught right before I went to become chair at Case Western, um, I, I sort of changed it to physics for lawyers because I only because I'd, I'd met a lot of pre-law students, but I'd never met any poets in any of the classes that I taught. But um, uh, I always made a point of requiring them to read Galileo because it's it's, it's readable and and um, and the utility of using the Socratic method, which he does, and and, and with humor, but also pedagogically, there's a lot of evidence that that the only way to really learn something is to confront your own misconceptions. And that's precisely the way, more or less, he teaches things. And he had great thought experiments well before Einstein. He the, he would have had the Italian version of Gedanken experiments, mm-hmm. um, and, and and they're great and they're wonderful, wonderful ways of realizing your own misconceptions. And I've used them once. I was once in 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 another life lecturing before many leaders of the free world. It turned out, mm-hmm. um, and I. And I and I asked them, you know, I had a piece of paper and a and a book, and I asked which would which would hit the hit the ground first. And and of course they they all said the book. But then I did the standard thing, which I do with class, say why, and and of course many of them would say it, books heavier. And then I you know, and then I scrunched up the paper into a ball and 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 and, and let it drop. And they you know, and that was shocking them, but it was really a version of what what uh, what Galileo did. And so his pedagogy was great, but as a scientist, he really was. I used to say he was the father of modern science, but then I actually read a piece by his father, who was a musician, by the way. Yeah, uh, Vincenzo, and, uh, Vincenzo. Yeah, yeah. And it's a and it's a great discussion of the nature of truth and and empirical evidence. And I kind of realized, well, it's clear why Galileo grew up to be the way he was. His father was a was a passionate advocate for truth and evidence. And so I like to think of Galileo's father as the father of modern science, since Galileo was the first science, modern scientist. <laughs> That's right. That's his uh, <clears throat> his uh, 
his his heritage, his legacy of that. Yes, his father was a was a, a musician, and then he would use things like tempo uh, mm-hmm. and so forth later on, influencing him. You know, to take his pulse. To yeah, use take that pulse, a, that's how he timed. And I don't know if you've been. You probably have. Then you've probably been to the museum in Florence, the sign, which I yeah. find, I, frankly, much more fascinating than all the other art museums in Florence. It I is. find that museum is sign. It's it. And when you go to Florence and it's busy because you can't get into the art museums, you can always get into the Museum of Science and yeah. not only see Galileo's finger, but see the the actually instruments that he used to discover the laws of motion and change the way we think about the world in a way that in some ways was more not only more profound than what other, maybe what anyone else did, but the rest of modern science was impossible without what without Galileo. And Newton, basically, Newton, you know, Newton's first law, at least, is just sort of a natural extension of what Galileo did. And, and so Newton was lucky. I mean, Newton was amazing, but certainly lucky to be born a generation or two after Galileo. Yeah, yeah, he took the mantle on I think on the year that Galileo died, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> he was born on Christmas Day. At least as everyone always says that, Lawrence, but they don't realize that the Gregorian calendar changed. Uh, <laughs> so it's yeah. actually I think he was born on what we would call January fourth or something. Mm-hmm. Now. But I want to read a passage from Sidereus Nuncius, which I think is the book you know uh, that with the aid of the of the telescopic lever figuratively moved the earth more than any other scientific instrument, more than the Large Hadron Collider, more than LIGO. And I want to read it, and I want to particularly pay attention to the second half of this passage. So Galileo says in Sidereus Nuncius, the starry messenger, he says, with the aid of the spyglass, the universe may be observed so well that all the disputes that for so many generations have vexed philosophers are destroyed by visible, by visible certainty, and we are liberated from their wordy arguments. You're no uh, fan of philosophers, if I recall correctly. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I get, it's a bad rap. I, I get accused of that just for making a few jokes. But anyway, well, yeah, I want to get get to that because you know when you spoke here, I got pushed back once. Uh, you know, for the colloquium that you gave from the string theorist, uh, you've pushed on philosophers, especially in the wake of a review by a, a prominent. Uh, philosopher of a universe from nothing. Uh, what what is this kind of uh, you know? Of, of course, Galileo and Newton were considered natural philosophers, whatever that means. It's very different from what is your beef with philosophers? I, I, look, I don't have really beef with it at all. But but, but let me say that w- w- the difference. What made natural, I mean, science was natural philosophy. I mean, so it grew out of philosophy, so there's no denying that. But then you can also say philosophy grew out of religion, but philosophy isn't religion and science isn't philosophy. Sure, we we respect the legacy, but the fact, what he said in the Starry Messenger there, just by looking through a telescope, you can destroy the debates, is a great example of the difference of, of, of the scientific method the whole methodology that he he epitomized, but and also largely created, compared to say Aristotle, who's who who no doubt was a wonderful philosopher and was, and I, I people have made me appreciate him more than I had before. But mm-hmm. who? But one of the things Aristotle said is that men and women have a different number of teeth, and 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 what Galileo could have said to him and would have said to him is, why do you look in their mouths and count, <laughs> and. and and that's the difference. Now, so look. But you know, he did do something amazing, Lawrence, Aristotle. The only scientific thing I think that he did, Aristotle, that is, that wasn't wrong, is he said that whales aren't fish. Now, yeah. I don't know how the hell he did that, but but he did it. So, But some but people have also told me his, some of his biology was actually better than I'm giving credit for it. But let's not, let's not, we didn't come here to 
either bury or praise Aristotle. So let's let's get back to um, so philosophy. We all do philosophy, and philosophy as an endeavor, which is really logical thinking, critical analysis. I mean, it's a central part of of all intellectual disciplines. So so let's n- n- be clear about that. What the the beef that I have is the people who's it, it, and I don't have a beef. Some philosophers. Well, I don't even want to put it this way. The claim that you have to study philosophy to be able to do physics is just wrong. That's all. It's just empirically wrong. As I like to say, most physicists can't spell philosophy. But uh, but it's but and so it's it's not. A, I mean, the more you read of any subject, the more you may appreciate your own discipline. So there's no denying that. But 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 you simply it's you simply don't have to. And no, and most scientists don't read philosophy. Moreover, the philosophy of science which is an interesting field. When it comes to physics, it's really irrelevant. I mean, in the sense that the questions of interest to those philosophers of science, which may be interesting intellectual questions, and I don't deny they might be, all, my only point is that they don't influence the progress of physics. Mm-hmm. So they're, some of them are incredibly interesting questions, but they don't influence the progress of physics. And that's just an empirical fact. It's not an opinion. Right. It's just a fact. Now, the the... The, the key point here, I think, is that when philosophy influences science the most is in a discipline where the questions aren't well-framed. When the questions aren't well-framed, philosophy is a wonderful discipline for helping frame good questions that drive that field forward. And the, a field, for example, that I would argue is in, maybe in such a, a state is, 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 is sort of has to do with brain science, consciousness, okay? Where a lot of, what is consciousness? You know, is a question that, is very usually you, you, when you ask that you get a vague answers at best, and so that's why there's a lot of interplay I think between uh, neuroscientists and, and philosophers, and when it comes to brain science, and I know a few uh, philosophers who are Dan Dennett and others who are who are who are interact very strongly with neuroscientists. But in physics, the questions are well framed, and the questions, you know, we've we've evolved so much since the time of Galileo. That really the field, you know, to, to really make progress, you have to you have to understand the, the intellectual baggage of the field, which isn't philosophy. Right. And that's true. Uh, now, what is interesting is that the results of physics can change, can then be utilized later by not just philosophers but other people to change their worldview, and that's what the the universe of nothing is all about. Mm-hmm. And some people object to the fact that, that that science changes the meaning of certain things, including nothing, the word nothing. And and my added, my answer to that is that, it, that well, that's just the example of learning. I mean, and 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 so um, so science changes changes a lot. It, when I talk, when I've debated with some Christian apologists, for example, yeah. classical logic may be useful, but when it comes to quantum mechanics, it's it's it it, it we often have to throw it out the window. And it's not because we want to, it's, or we have a predilection. It's the nature is the way nature is. And so, so any, in any case, I, have, mm-hmm. I think, you know, philosophy as a dif- discipline is incredibly important. And I've read philosophers, and they've had a great intellectual legacy. And some of the work they do in, in their own discipline, it may be incredibly difficult and interesting. But it just doesn't impact on the field of physics. And yeah. that's not a pejorative. That's just a fact. 
One of the main characters in the greatest story ever told so far, why are we here, is Plato. Yeah. Uh, he plays uh, the really an outsized role in that book, uh, even more than the person we're going to turn to next. But uh, I can't resist because you brought up Galileo, you brought up consciousness. Galileo was also one of the first people to tackle the problem, the hard problem of consciousness, <laughs> almost to no avail. Uh, but uh, what I love- There about hasn't in, been much progress since in my Exactly. Opinion. But yeah. in physics, look at the, the comparison. So I like yeah. that ratio test uh, that you were proposing as a rubric for at least assessing which problems can be attacked by rigorous, hard scientific uh, thinking and data and evidence and which ones may be forever locked away, free will, as you say, and uh, and consciousness perhaps being uh, two. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic. I just, you know, we have a long way to go, but I, I haven't seen any limits. Right now, to, I still haven't, you know, people ask, what are the limits to science? How we say, well, if I knew, you know, if I knew, I'd have to know what the, you know, what the limits are, right? I mean, it's just, it's kind of crazy. But I don't see a brick wall yet. There's th there are problems that are very hard, and I and I people think I'm joking when I say I've been on the stage with many biologists when I say I do physics because it's easy because it yeah. is easy compared to consciousness, and oh, yeah. and and so it's not surprising that we've made a lot more progress. But I don't see an ultimate barrier to understanding it eventually, and maybe you know I'm agnostic about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to talk about uh, prospects for. AI Galileo, or as I call him, AI or Galileo. Uh, we'll talk about that later. And if okay. computers are even capable of doing such things as uh, Galileo or Einstein did, we'll get to that later. But last part, last direct reading from Galileo, since I can't resist, uh, really involves what's very little known about. It. He also was a great, uh, you know, observer of the human condition. And I believe he came up with what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, which will segue back to a universe from nothing. So <laughs> what he says in Segredo, who is the character I'm playing yeah. in, uh, uh, in dialogue, okay. Segredo says this, uh, <clears throat> it always seems to me rashness on the part of some who want to make human abilities the measure of what nature can do. On the contrary, there is not a single effect in nature, even the least that exists, such that the most ingenious theorists can arrive at a complete understanding of it. In fact, this vain presumption of understanding everything, Lawrence, can have no other basis than ever understanding anything. For anyone who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had truly tasted how that knowledge was accomplished, he would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he understands nothing. I want to ask you, Lawrence, have you ever understood something that you feel was sort of as high a level a discovery that you made perhaps for the first time in human intellectual history? Once or twice. Uh, I may, let me, let me say there are a few times I made some profound discoveries, but they, the nature didn't, didn't cho choose to agree with them. They could, they could have been right. They weren't mathematically wrong as a theorist, you know, as an experimentalist, you're either right or wrong based on the experiment. But as a theorist, you can propose things that are perfectly consistent, but nature may not. You know, there was a once I, I was sure I had the solution of what's something called the solar neutrino problem that was beautiful, but nature didn't do that. But I think the, the one time that I really did uh, it really feel that was when I f was first became convinced there was a cosmological constant and, and, and no one believed it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, um, and spent a few years before I even convinced, I think, my colleague and co-author, Michael Turner, before we finally produced that paper in 1995, arguing that the, the evidence suggested that 70% of the universe was an empty the energy of empty space. And we did it. And I must say, in some sense, it was a realization and that I guess I felt that was the first one to kind of really appreciate that. But at the same time, to be fair, I... 
a large part of wanting to publish that was 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 the decision that I was convinced that it was a crazy uh, possibility, but it was the only possibility to me that agreed with all the data. So what it meant to me was that some of the data was wrong. So I really wrote that to point out that, hey, some of the cosmological data must be wrong because if it isn't, you're driven to this insane possibility and the insane possibility turned out to be right. So, but, <laughs> but, but, so that's probably, um, uh, for me, the most explicit example of, of you know, if, again, if you're a theorist, you often, you go through these phases, <laughs> almost like death of people, of, 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 of death of loved ones, where you, in almost every stage of a, of a, well, I mean, sometimes you're you're just pushing things forward a little bit, but if you're ever proposing something particularly new, you go through the stage of love, and you think, "Oh, this is this is this could really explain things," and then you, and and then it gets moderated, and then generally the experiments show it's wrong or something, and so you go through this grief period as well. So I've had this hope many times that that I might be the first one to understand things, but the that the the dark energy was probably the most concrete example mm-hmm. of, of, of potentially sort of being right. And that uh, brings us to the next uh, stage of the conversation, which we'll get into, you know, nothingness, et cetera. And this involves the beginning, not of one of your books, but of the recent book by your debate partner, Stephen C. Meyer, who is a Christian <laughs> apologist. And he is a uh, he has been on the show. We have talked about his new book, Return of the God Hypothesis. I'll put a link to it. Right over yeah. here. Uh, don't uh, don't bother. Don't do that to service to your to your to your listeners. Well, Lawrence, even... you know what? I actually wrote a blurb for that book, and no, uh, okay. you'll be amused why. Because he sent me this book, and uh, and in it, he said, you know, I've seen your videos, and I've had some videos critical of mm-hmm. string theory and the multiverse and stuff. I hope we can get into, but um, but he said, you know, I thought you might find this book interesting, and if you wouldn't mind considering a blurb, uh, you know, it's got Brian Josephson, which mm. you know you know is a controversial figure, but yeah, you know, yeah. I thought it would be interesting to have a blurb from a guy who won the Nobel Prize, right? Uh, whose name Brian, and then another blurb from a Brian who lost oh, the I Nobel Prize. I see. That. So it was, <laughs> but anyway, that was, it was your, that was your rationale. Okay. Yep, well, I, I was pleased to see that at least in an article he wrote afterwards that he claimed that writing that book was motivated by, in part by a debate he had with me in Toronto where it he was. You're the opening line. Yeah, You're in yeah. the opening line of the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the book uh, goes through basically trying to make the argument from, um, uh, from design, essentially that two different instantiations of information lead, and he is a PhD from Cambridge in yeah. philosophy of science, just, just for the record. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about philosophy of science uh, just a minute ago. But the the claim that he makes is, you know, I'll leave aside the DNA, you know, that requires a, a mind, et cetera, but that the low entropy, you know, starting point of the universe uh, leads to, uh, you know, there aren't things in the universe that decrease entropy, according to the second law. And he goes through the board Guth Vilenkin theorem. He actually does a good job explaining what that is. He talks about, um, you know, alternative proposals. He gets into uh, all sorts of all sorts of mathematical wick rotations, and he goes after Stephen Hawking in a brief history, which I've actually taken big issue with Stephen Hawking for kind yeah. of literally in that book. He says, "I'm going to do a trick." Don't pay attention to it. It's just a mathematical. And he does what's called a wick rotation, which Mm. you're very familiar with. And then all of a sudden, time has no boundary. Okay, so I I think that's kind of nonsensical. No physicists nowadays. I have my own. Stephen was an old friend of mine. I think I know why he did said that. But anyway, I won't. I won't say. And then there's also so much uh, of so many of these books nowadays that mention God, et cetera, the God equation, the God hypothesis. Anyway, what do you make of this notion of the? uh, Is it a problem that the universe seemed to start? 
unless you apply the Alpertian, which I know you might have issues with, uh, you know, this past hypothesis instantiation by fiat of a low entropy state. Talk to me about what, what do you think of as a problem for the, in the ordinary Big Bang, board guth uh boundary proposals? What do you think of it as a problem? Is it a problem or people? Uh, I, like I think people are, first of all, I think people are, People like Stephen Meyer are trying to point out what they think are problems because they've heard people talk about problems that aren't really problems. And and by the way, I should say I've written a a response to to demonstrate most of his misconceptions um, in in a in a in a, in a, in a uh, called uh, Cosmology Without Design, I think, in mm-hmm. the in the uh, magazine, which is a lovely magazine online called Inference. Yeah, um, I'll put a link um, to that. Edited yep. by uh, uh, yeah, Dave Berlinski and and Shelley Glashow, in fact, is the is the uh, I think editor in chief of it or something. But um, anyway, so I tried to explain there why the you know, wh- what the misconceptions that somehow cosmology points to design was. But look, the the point is that all all you need is a universe that can have at some from some mi- arbitrarily microscopically small region inflation, and the rest just happens naturally. So I don't see what the, I mean. Concerns about the state before inflation um, are interesting. We we have no evidence about them. And if inflation happened, it erased that evidence largely. What happened before them, and um, and and we also know we don't have a theory of t equals zero either. So where people start talking about problems in areas where the physics really isn't well defined, what I say is, well, okay, that's fine. Let's talk about the physics where we can understand it. And I and I and in fact, my in my book, um, Adam, which is a mm-hmm. which was a history of an atom from the beginning of the universe to the end. One of my actually one of my favorite books in a way. Yeah. Um, I really began. I think it's only it's useful to begin our history of the universe to, back to a time when our both our theories and our empirical data allow us to reliably extrapolate. Before that, it's just pure speculation. I'm sure we can talk about it, but it's just words. And when we think about, uh, you know, obviously a universe from nothing is making the case for um, some pre-existing state of the universe. The one thing that Stephen points out and others have pointed out too, Paul Steinhardt, Einstein professor of natural science at Princeton University, Neil Turok, a fellow Canadian, uh, <laughs> at least well, transplanted. He's, he's, yeah, yeah, he's transplanted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and student of Stephen Hawking, right? Um, this uh, this notion that uh, you don't need a necessarily need a uh, a singularity. You don't need to have a you know quantum gravity. I want to ask you. I've asked this of Lenny Susskind. I've had Sir Roger Penrose on after mm-hmm. he won the Nobel Prize. I claim I hear this Ouroboros statement, this tautological statement which is that we need quantum gravity to understand the physics of singularities at the core of a black hole and at the origin of the universe. Um, and then why do we need that? Because the universe began with a singularity, but there's no evidence. And in, as you said, the universe hides evidence of its own origin. Now, I have a vested interest in this as yeah. one of the uh, four co-leaders of the Simons Observatory looking yeah. for primordial gravitational wave B modes. Yeah. I, I, this, my, li- my job security does depend on this, as Upton Sinclair you know, would say. This and, is yet- an area. and as I spent many years of my life tr- discussing those very gravitational waves as signals. That's right. From, from the beginning of time. Um, and in fact, actually happy to say that I was asked, as you probably know, by physical letters to write the companion piece uh, to, to, to that paper that your book that behind you is based on. That's um, right. And, and because, because I was ready and happily the head of your collaboration, you know, I had all the data in advance and, and so I could do that. But anyway, um, you're Look, I think the point is we do, if we avoid a singularity, 
which I think is most physicists would speculate is likely since we don't like singularities. Mm-hmm. The way to avoid it is is probably a theory of quantum gravity. So in my book and in my work, but in my book in particular, I talk about what is an extre- extremely plausible hypothesis about how, you, and, and in fact, actually one that began began with work I, when I was a graduate student and then and then I, I chose not to publish it. And Alex Falinkin actually ended up at the rent, just down the corner from me published the, the paper at the, almost the same time. I was working with a friend of mine, Ian Affleck, on it. Um, uh, but, you know, it, plausibly, you, you can create a universe of finite size as a quantum fluctuation. And then and then you don't have to, then you avoid that, that question, if you want, about the singularity. But you don't avoid the question of quantum gravity because the creation of such a, uh, of such a microscopic universe, non-singular but microscopic, that process is a quantum mechanical process that involves gravity. So we can speculate about its likelihood, but we can't we can't calculate the details, if you wish, without a theory of quantum gravity. So you kind of need a theory of quantum gravity to, to either whether there's a singularity or n- or not uh, to mm. really frame the initial conditions of of our universe. Which is, which is, as physicists, really, that's, I mean, more or less, once you have the initial conditions, then the rest is sort of, you know, just, not, it's just easy <laughs> in principle. Um, but, but, the, but the plausibility, the fact that we know a theory of quantum, we know that space and time are the variables of gravity, and that if gravity is quantum mechanical, those two variables become quantum mechanical. And therefore, since they're quantum fluctuations, you should be able to spontaneously create space times. That is incredibly plausible, and any and it's hard to imagine any theory of quantum gravity that wouldn't have such a possibility. But 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 that's all you can do at, at some level, um, and the rest is talk. And and but but that's all you need to to do what I I did in the book, really, to point out that that um, that ultimately the surprising thing, and this is where science. I mean, my, the intent of that book was really to discuss the revolutions that have taken place in cosmology over the last fifty years. And but and also to point and also certainly to hit at religion because after evolution the last bastion of sort of of, of God was in somehow creation of the universe. After you showed that you can have life without God, then then and then the next but you can people, have evolution. Without I know, God. I know, I know, I know, I know. Evolution doesn't. Darwin never talked. In fact, Darwin said we would never understand the origin of life. It would but, be like understanding the origin of matter. Yeah, exactly. And I've quoted it, and we exactly, and we're hopefully understanding the origin of matter sometime. Yeah, but but. Uh, the point is that that you know that's often held as hey how could you create a universe without without a supernatural being because how could you create a universe with a, a, a hundred billion galaxies each containing hundred billion stars a lot of stuff if you didn't have stuff there at the beginning and and what's worth pointing out is that that argument itself is just simply fallacious whether or not you buy the other details as Alan talked about from Alan Guth talked about mm-hmm. with inflation you get a great free lunch because mm-hmm. gravity has negative energy you can get what apparently is something from nothing very easily. And that was a discussion I wanted to have in my book to point that out, that you don't need something supernatural to have a universe full of stuff if there was no stuff in the beginning. But why and not? I think that's, that's really profoundly surprising. It certainly was, if you'd asked me, if you'd asked me f- in the 1970s, or early 80s, I would have, I would have thought that was, I would have said that's nonsense. But anyway. 
So I'm sitting in the office, um, as you remember from visiting here, yeah. uh, this is the office once occupied by Jeffrey Burbage and, uh-huh. uh, his wife, Margaret left some late, great Margaret Burbage. Uh, uh-huh. she, one of the Titans of astronomy of all time. She uh-huh. left uh, some of these plates of, yeah. you know, from telescopes from before I was born, uh, taken here. Uh, this is actually from, yeah, two months before I was born, 1971, oh, 71. uh, taken and, and so forth. But yeah, as you know, Jeff was a major opponent of, uh, not only of inflation, but of, of the, of the Big Bang itself. And in fact, he was one of the foremost uh, proponents of the quasi-steady state universe, yeah. along with mm-hmm. his late great colleague, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, who was one who's a titanic influence on, on cosmology. But he used to say- And also like wrote the, great science fiction, by the way. Wonderful yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote uh, once that people, cosmologists, practicing cosmologists, card-carrying cosmologists, were overwhelmed, I quote, by their uh, in their appreciation of the Big Bang because of their love of Genesis 1-1. And I think actually your, you know, obviously Borguth Lincoln and inflation, Allen's work and Linde's work, Steinhardt's work, um, they uh, they is sort of more of a fellow traveler with uh, with the biblical narrative than is Paul Steinhardt, uh, who has. All right, I mentioned Paul yeah. Steinhardt, but I meant in his initial car- incarnation mm. as a, one of the fa- founding fathers of new inflation, not in his now role as one of the most prominent anti-inflation yeah. activists. Yeah, it's such a thing could be mentioned. So why not? Sad. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. well, well. Let's get into that because he, yeah, he's uh, he's a titanic influence on on well, cosmology anyway. and um, and is is doing really interesting alternative work. But and we'll get into that the importance of of non mainstream um, uh, voices in cosmology. But getting back to Hoyle, Hoyle thought the Big Bang was too was an inflation. He'd probably say the same thing was too much like Genesis one one. And we cosmologists like you, Lawrence, you're overwhelmed by Genesis. You just love Genesis, but. Wouldn't an eternal universe, wouldn't that make more sense? In other words, where in, uh, and I give this to Stephen Meyer, where does Hilbert space come from? You know, where, where is an instantiation of, uh, of, a, of a, you know, as Sean Carroll talks about this in his talk, uh, God is not a good theory. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where, where, where does the Hilbert space come from? And why not, why not travel in the, in the camp of, uh, of a cyclic model? Like Sir Roger. Well, well, first of all, the answer to where Silver Swift comes from is it's quite simple. We don't know. We don't know if quantum mechanics arises only in our universe or if it's a universal um, property of nature. And we don't, and physics in some sense doesn't answer those kind of questions. But I think the answer to, well, look, first of all, it doesn't matter what people think are pretty or nice or a cyclic universe is very pretty, but it doesn't really matter whether it's pretty. The question is what it's farther away from God. It's well, no, no, farther. yeah. Well, who cares whether it's far? But point is, we shouldn't be driven by our hatred or love of God. And no, and as far as I know, no physicists are to mm-hmm. first approximation. Um, I mean, it is worth pointing out that the father of the Big Bang really was, you know, well, he was a Catholic priest. He was a priest. Yeah. And, and Lemaitre was wonderful, but he also, when the Pope, when the Pope specifically said, hey, this validates Genesis, he wrote, no. he wrote to the Pope and said, no, you don't say that because it's a scientific theory and you shouldn't abuse it. Yeah. But so sure, it is a, I mean, if, if, if there's one thing that the Catholic Church could jump up and down and say, see, we told you so, it would be that because it was the conventional wisdom in science before 19, well, certainly 1925, say, or even before 1925, that the universe was static and eternal. That was a scientific view, and probably specifically because it wasn't Genesis. Mm-hmm. I mean, among other things, there was no evidence of anything of any evolution of the universe, and so that. And then the Big Bang was discovered, and it demonstrated that our universe had a beginning, most likely. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Church could rightly jump up and down and say, "See, we told you so." But of course, 
that's just vague. One is just vague words. One is reality. One's got stupid stories associated with one's got, one's got empirical evidence. Uh, but, but I think the bottom line is that if no one, what we've grown up to realize that our universe is not all there is most likely. And therefore to say that our universe had a beginning is not to suggest we, what really matters now is the multiverse. Okay. That could be eternal if you don't like it, but, but, but I like, but for, for me, what I like better is an argument that St- Stephen Hawking gave. And, and I, so the same thing, if are you, let's say our universe is all there is space and time are coupled. If space comes into existence then time comes into existence. Okay. So there was no time before the big bang. And the question, what happened before the big bang is simply not a good question. The whole question of causality and everything else goes out the window because if if there is no before, then the traditional notions of causality and 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 inference that of course apologists and others love to jump on is is a is a wrong question. It's like you know what's the as Richard said I think in my book I don't know what somewhere what's the color of jealousy although we know that's green but mm-hmm. um uh so I think the point is I love the the no, the realization that we may have to just change our notions. If uh, of of sort of 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 causality itself, if time began with the Big Bang, because there was no before, and then and 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 you know I love the idea that we're forced to change our notions, but but I suspect more likely is that our universe had a beginning in a, in a, in a in the midst of of something which from which you, some universes are beginning right now and some universes are ending, which is a multiverse. Everything I know about about theoretical physics right now suggests to me that's the most likely possibility but um but i'm not wedded to it but uh, by the way um i i uh some people would say of course you can't measure your multiverse but the wonderful thing and i wrote a paper um uh, uh pointing this out and then another one paper with my friend frank wilczek about this that that uh if we did measure gravitational waves from inflation, it would demonstrate that gravity is a quantum theory, but it will also, in some ways, give us a way of proving that there is a multiverse. Well, I want to get into that because I read that paper and I've had Frank on to discuss that paper uh, in the past year. <laughs> but I, I confess I don't fully understand uh, the quantal nature. You know, we, uh, one of my professors there, Professor Eck at Case Western, you might remember oh, the Tom late Tom Eck, of course, yeah. Yeah, Tom Eck. He was his boss for uh, a while. Yeah, so he, uh, he used to talk about, you know, we, we say classical physics, so we should say quantal physics. Anyway, um, getting into that, uh, in what, you know, when I think about a quantum mechanical experiment, you know, all, all the time, we're going to talk about why there's so many theorists writing, you know, popularizations of science, but not as many experimentalists. But whenever I hear a theorist talk about it, it's always spooky action at a distance. Like what constitutes the quantum to a theorist like you is, you know, spooky action at a distance or it's entanglement or it is the double slit experiment and the many worlds and things split up. Anyway, how would Bicep 2 in, in the in the counterfactual universe where, you know, my, my book is winning the Nobel Prize, um, how, how in such a, in such a universe um, does the detection of a classical gravitational wave, de, you know, manifest the imprimatur of a quantum process to 381,000 years earlier? Well, uh, because it, it okay, um, if it's a scale invariant spectrum, then there's only one dimensional parameter that determines the um, 
the the uh, the intensity, if you wish, of gravitational waves, and that's in some sense the energy scale at which they're created. Okay, and what what we showed, I mean, I showed in in, in explicit calculation, and then when I talked to Frank about it, we came up with a a dimensional analysis argument, which is really really quite wonderful, which it basically shows that given it's just given that the only dimensional parameter is the scale of, in, of inflation, if you want to call it that, but the scale at which this scale invariant spectrum is created. You can show that that spectrum, the power in that spectrum vanishes in the limit where the Planck's constant vanishes. And so, the whole, you know, you can jump up and down and talk about spooky action and distance and everything else, but the point is that, that the finite, all of it comes down to the fact that Planck's constant, the fundamental constant of quantum mechanics, is a finite number. It affects the energy levels of atoms. It, 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 it really demonstrates the quantum nature of matter and energy, or more the initial version, which is that, you know, that, things are, that all states are quantized in energy levels. And if, if H-bar, if the Planck's constant went to zero, then atoms would have a continuum of levels instead of a, a finite spectrum. And it turns out, and I can show in the blackboard pretty easily, but not probably not here at the right time, but sometime mm-hmm. I'll come there and show you. Yeah. Um, it, by simple, literally undergraduate level dimensional analysis, that given, given the, the dimensional, the, the, and it has to be a scale invariant spectrum for this to be the case, by the way, um, that you can show that that vanishes, that no matter how it's calculated, it will vanish in the limit where quantum mechanics goes away. So hmm. if it's there, then, 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 um, and it's a gravitational process, then gravity must be governed by, by quantum mechanics. And would the same hold true, you know, if I tell you I've got uh, Johnson noise, stochastic scale invariant, I detect it in my uh, radio receiver um, from no. the, the dimensions from the are different. Okay, no, so. I, I'm I, sorry. I, I I shouldn't interrupt, but I know no, I no. think I know where you're heading. And the point is, yeah. it turns out the unique. It just you have to know that there's only two quantities. I should say there's there's not one dimensional quantity. If it's a if it's a gravitational process, there's another dimensional quantity, which is which is uh, uh, the gravitational constant, Newton's constant, mm-hmm. and Newton's constant has dimensions. That's what makes it different than than electromagnetism, mm-hmm. and. When you say the only two-dimensional quantities are, are Newton's constant, that, which tells you the strength of gravity, yep. and the scale at which this thing is produced, when you combine them, you show it vanishes unless, uh, unless the, 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 uh, in, in, the, in the classical limit. But that's not true for electromagnetism. It's not true for that, that same dimensional analysis counting doesn't work. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder though if I'm wrong actually, because to get to get the mode counting correctly in the black body case, you do need to actually include the phase factor for including Planck's constant. But I guess the inference I was trying to make is if you detect a classical wave, you know. And but your point is that it's a background and stochastic. It has to have those two features. It's and a, actually, yeah, yeah. It has to be not just as. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For example, we've detected classical gravitational waves from 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 colliding black holes, but in no way that does that in any way prove that, that gravity is a quantum theory. It's mm-hmm. a very different kind of argument. Right. And then the only other response I would get is that, at, as you know, because you worked on this for decades, uh, that there is so-called second-order tensor perturbations. Anytime I had Alan Lightman on this week and I told him his my favorite of all his books is a problem book in 
gravity and general relativity. Uh, so we talked about that for an hour. No, no, we didn't do that. That would be a, a complete way. But I said, there's a problem in there in chapter three, where he talks about on the Massachusetts turnpike, where you probably spent many hours of your life, a motorist is shaking his fist at another motorist and how much gravitational wave energy does he produce? And I said, well, uh, but I'm saying to you now, rather, that um, the early universe, even in the bouncing cosmological models, has a vast amount of matter and a vast amount of acceleration. And so there are second order tensor perturbations, oh, which sure. would produce. Yeah. So if we detect those, then that is uh, those are implicitly classical. In other words, there is no quantum gravity in the cyclic or aeon model of Sir Roger or whatever. So. Uh, I wonder, you know, it, would there way, be a way, and it would produce a background. I mean, you'd see a stochastic background of gravitational waves from the metric reverberations of second order. So I wonder, is it possible to falsify it? And and maybe maybe not, but I, I think this well, has been I, helpful. Well, I, I think there is. I've written paper. We can talk about it. I, I think there are ways to falsify it by looking at, at a few things, the ratio of density, because those second order fluctuations are related to density fluctuations. And so relating re- relating it to density fluctuations, you can try and see Comparing what we would call, and and this is probably too much for any of your listeners, scalar vector and tensor perturbations, comparing them, you can, I believe, falsify it. Mm-hmm. And I've thought a lot about it. But anyway. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Maybe we do. We do on this channel. We also do something called Journal Club, uh, where I have uh, eminent scholars uh, come and talk about uh, deep dives into research. Because my, my audience is, they do like to go pretty deep and stuff. And whenever mm-hmm. I have a you know politician on or you know somebody, I had the mayor of San Diego on, well, you know, they, mm-hmm. they kind of tune out. And, and I loved, or the mayoral candidates. Um, I want to ask a question about, uh, about, you know, whether or not there are as a natural correlation, and perhaps you're surprisingly aberrant in the sense that most of the supporters of the multiverse are fellow traveling along with string theory. And you are a very, very prominent, you know, kind of outspoken, um, uh, you know, critic of, of string theory uh, and what it might mean. And then you for- see, see, I get, I get labeled. Well, I, don't, I get labeled many things. And, well, and we talked about this on Clubhouse once. No, yeah, no, I, yeah. I know, but, but I'm a critic of hype is what I'm a critic yes. when it comes to science. So I was a critic of the hype associated with string theory. I wrote a whole book called Hiding in the Mirror, which is really about the search for extra dimensions, and it explains why string theory is very well motivated. Mm. So this, this, as, a, as a fundamental area of physics, it's, it's very well motivated. I happen to think probably more than loop quantum gravity, but, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's the hype. It's the fact that, that you know, it's, this, it, it's this interesting idea that was claimed to be able to tell us everything, and it's told us virtually nothing except providing an incredible amount useful mathematical tools to apply to other physical systems. Anyway. Yeah. Actually, I, I want to turn to that because your friend uh, Stephen Hawking, late great Stephen Hawking, he would often you know, concede bets. And on the basis of, uh, of, of a proof from, say, Juan Maldacena, in you know five dimensional ADS CFT, uh, you can recover back in Stephen Hawking. You can get all sorts of information. But I want to ask you, like, I mean, I, I feel like he conceded that too easily. Like, how do we know uh, that, I think that ADS was, CFT even exists? It's true. No, I, I think I think look, uh, uh, Stephen's a wonderful man, but he's also a very astute um, promoter. <laughs> yeah. And and I think he did some things he did because he he realized they'd get attention. And mm-hmm. I, I tend to think that was the case. Yeah. By the way, I'm really pissed that I had a, I had what I thought should have been a famous bet with with Hawking and Wilczek, which I won. Oh wow! Uh, and Dennis Overby was was there to, uh, but but certify to, it to, to to. But he he claims he he you know he's just too shy. I think he didn't want to anyway. But I, I, it was early on. I right after 
was shortly after um, the dark energy was discovered mm-hmm. that I argued, and there was a great deal of of all this hype about oh, quintessence about we'll be able to measure, uh, you know, that it's changing and blah blah. And I and I said within a decade there will be no nothing that will be able to tell us that that it it uh, it the dark energy is changing. There'll be yeah. nothing that'll be able to tell you that it is a cosmological constant, and therefore there's nothing that tells you it isn't. And, right. and there'll be no there'll be no observational data. And they say, oh no no no, within a decade. So so both Frank and Stephen were wrong, and neither of them had. Well, Stephen died, and Frank has refused to admit he made that bet. But but it's I surprising said, because in his book, which I have somewhere here, and I talk a beautiful question, was written in 2014. Uh, he makes a claim that within five years, supersymmetry will be discovered. So yeah. I feel of Frank that, as Sir Roger Penrose once said, the, the quickest way to get rich is to make a bet with Stephen Hawking. Because no matter what you bet, he's going to concede because of the attention, I think. And, uh, and and oftentimes he would have two different positions but on the I, same. But, they, oh, but you don't become rich by betting with Stephen Hawking. You just get some notoriety. <laughs> yeah, you get a subscription to Playboy <laughs> or, or something. Yeah, like yeah something like that. But anyway, <laughs> Stephen, Stephen's going to take a bet, and I never got to – I never got to either. We just bet a very expensive bottle of wine, and I never, I never got it, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. yeah. So, but, but I don't think. Uh, so, first of all, whether I, you know, it, it, putting people in camps worries me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the claimed progress in string theory. I have great respect for for the work that's being done in many ways, which, I mean, I, Ed Witten is another friend of mine and, and someone I admire tremendously for their abilities. Um, but, but, you know, but string theory isn't quantum quantum. It, it hasn't explained the world, but, but that has nothing to do with a, whether a, a multiverse is a very sensible idea. The, the, the really sensible multiverse, the, the well-motivated multiverse is not the multiverse of string theory, the extra dimensional many universes. Mm-hmm. The, the, the only one that is inescapable, it seems to me, is the one from inflation. And mm-hmm. and that multiverse, namely, there are many universes in, you know, there need not be extra dimensions, but they're in in four dimensions and three plus one dimensions. There there are many spatially separated universes. Uh, over time, is an in, is generally an inescapable prediction of inflation. And I find that the well motivated multiverse, the the notion that there may be many other universes in higher dimensions. I mean, I was very happy that it got one of my students, Raman Sundram, tenure. But mm-hmm. but uh, 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 when and he proposed large universes, I guess with Lisa Randall. But but uh, but I've always thought it was ugly as sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's. I guess the 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 only sense I I kind of pejoratively say that they might be fellow travelers is that some claim that both are unfalsifiable. First, before I go there, I want to ask you a question. I mean, you hear this a lot as a canard and experimentalists will say things like, oh, well, you know, it's not even wrong or theorists will say, you know, because you can't falsify it. Uh, But I I think we're overwhelmed to use Hoyle's word or uh, vernacular, kind of overwhelmed by Popper. And uh, and Popper <laughs> is not Girdle. In other words, I, I I think Girdle said something that's quantitative and not just qualitative. It is qualitative, but it's mostly quantitative. You can say what the limits of a particular field of human endeavor is or are. And uh, but in physics, you know, falsifiability is not uh, is not the sine qua non. Nor did Popper actually say he was a big fan of the of the steady state theory, as you know. Well, um, you know, uh, yeah, okay. Or had the virtue of falsifiability. Well, I think that there's different levels of falsifiability. The question is not can you falsify a theory. The question is is it in principle falsifiable? And those are two different things, I think. Yeah. So in exactly. principle, 
in principle, you can imagine string theory being falsifiable. I mean, you know, you can imagine somehow doing experiments that might be able to test a prediction if they ever made one of, of, uh, of, of the early universe. Um, that, uh, so it's, it's not falsifiable now in the sense that first of all, it really doesn't yet make predictions. And secondly, the scale of those at which its predictions involved in generally are beyond the realm of our experimental ability right now. But that doesn't, that's, that's a different level of, of something that's than, than falsifiability. And the question, you know, the question I used to ask is inflation ever falsifiable? And, and, and I used to think the answer was no, but I, I don't think it's the case now. Well, let's get into that. I mean, I have said that inflation could have been falsified if we measured the curvature to be, you know, 0.90, which no, we could no, measure. No, no, no. You see, you're too young. That's the problem. Okay. You see, right. you're, you, you, you it's never been a problem me. before. But yeah, yes, but, but, but yeah. Well, anyway, it's, um, it's a problem now. And, but okay. happily, it's a problem you're going to quickly get over. Anyway, um, but, uh, or not quickly, but eventually I'll get over it. Um, and that is that that's why I used to say it wasn't falsifiable because the minute when I, and then all the, before 19, before we wrote the paper on the cosmological uh, dark energy, the conventional wisdom at that time in the early nineties of, uh, of, uh, of, astronomers and cosmologists, and these, these are the, the, the non-particle cosmologists, was that the universe was open, that the, that the curvature, sure. you know, that, 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 yeah, that um, was Omega wasn't one. Density. Yeah. yeah right. and, 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 um, and that was the conventional wisdom. And in that picture, there were a million inflationary models that would produce an open universe. So mm-hmm. the minute that the data showed that, all of the theorists would immediately develop inflationary models, which I thought were incredibly ugly, but I think most many inflationary models are ugly, um, which would make an open universe. And the point is, you could you could design an inflationary model that would. That was what my concern was. You could d- design an inflationary model that would predict an open universe or a flat universe, and and potentially even a closed universe. I haven't thought about the details, but but. And that bothered me because then I'd say, well, if we measure omega one, and that's all, if that's the only parameter we have, which at that time we thought even that would be a stretch, even right. that, even that would be a stretch to be able to measure that. But if we could measure that, it wouldn't prove inflation happened. It would just make it plausible. But you, but inflation wouldn't be disproved if omega wasn't one, if there was curvature, and that used to bother me. And and um, and of course now people don't have to worry so much about that because the. Dark energy has saved the day. It was one of the reasons that Mike Turner and I argued it was there, among other reasons, um, because it allows a flat universe, if, if but one in which matter doesn't dominate. Yeah, anyway. So that would have falsified. So you're saying that would have been uh, falsification of inflation gen- more generically than curvature not being equal to zero? No, no, neither of them would have been a falsification. No, no, none of those things could falsify inflation. What I'm saying is that looking at curvature is not a falsification of inflation because you could design inflationary models that will allow, that will, at the end of inflation, you'll have curvatures. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible, featuring your host, Brian Keating, in an in-depth, wide-ranging discussion with celebrated author and physicist Lawrence Krauss. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. 
We appreciate hearing from you and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating. 